The FT. Hello from London. I'm Michael Stott, the UK news editor. This week, the Financial Times has been examining Britain's public spending cuts. Chancellor George Osborne's nine-year programme to cut the UK's budget deficit and restore the public finances has now reached the midway mark. The results have been surprising. On the positive side, economic growth has returned, foreign investment is strong, employment is reaching record levels, and there's been no sign so far of the mass unrest or unemployment predicted by some commentators when the cuts were first announced in 2010. On the negative side, the job of repairing Britain's public finances has been much slower than originally expected, and it appears that the toughest part still lies ahead. With me to discuss Britain and the cuts at the midway mark is our economics editor, Chris Giles, and our UK chief political correspondent, Jim Pickard. Chris, if I could start with you. You've written that Chancellor George Osborne may have to almost double the size of his spending cuts in the next parliament if he's re-elected. Can you explain why that is? Yes, I can. When we say double the size, we're talking about a number about 48 billion pounds compared with 25 billion in the first parliament. Now this relates to day-to-day spending by government departments and the reason we're sort of at the midway mark but you've got a doubling, it sounds a bit of a contradiction, is because in the first parliament quite a lot of the spending cuts were in capital so we didn't build schools that we had maybe expected to, we didn't do other infrastructure projects and some more was in welfare cuts. So because in the second half we're actually expecting most of the cuts to come in day-to-day spending, it's actually that part of government budgets is going to be really heavily hit. And this is all not our own figures. This is based on the Office for Budget Responsibilities published numbers. There's, there's nothing tricksy that the FT's done here. This is published numbers of just digging deep into them. But at the uh, Conservative Party conference, we heard the Prime Minister talking about cuts of, of 25 billion rather than 48 billion. So... How do we explain the difference there? Yes, yeah, so well, how does that compute? Well, there's two sort of explanations. Two things the Prime Minister did in his calculation, which we would suggest is not a necessarily very sensible thing to do. One is he missed out two years, 2015-16 and 2018-19. So we haven't had the cuts in 2015-16 yet, so we think these are still to come and need to be added in. And we clearly haven't had the ones in 18-19 yet. And the other thing the Prime Minister did was he didn't take account of the fact that the rising number of pensioners and the triple lock on pensions that gives them rather generous settlements, plus public service pensions and the increase in tax credit, all of which is forecast and sort of slightly baked into the cake over the next four years, means that the actual cut that departments have to face has to take account of that. So he just did the sort of overall cut and didn't look at what that actually meant for government departments. And that's what we did. Jim, if I could bring you in here, you heard what Chris is saying, the hard part's still to come, more cuts, but we've had the Prime Minister talking about tax cuts and promising us tax cuts instead. What's going on here? Well, in politics, honesty is always relative, and the Conservatives think that they're already ahead on economic credibility. They've put out this figure of £25 billion of cuts to come in the next Parliament, and that was George Osborne's announcement at the Conservative Party conference. And then the next day, David Cameron pops up and says, we can find tax cuts in the next parliament that would amount to about £7 billion. It's kind of the equivalent of a fitness instructor saying, you know, you're going to have to shape up, things are going to be difficult, we have difficult times ahead, uh, you won't be able to eat very much, etc. And then uh, literally the next day saying, well, here are some jam donuts to kind of take away the pain. 
But in relative terms, the Conservatives have been more open about what's to come than the Labour Party. And the Labour Party spent the first few years of this Parliament opposing cuts, not entirely, because they also pledged to reduce the deficit, if not get rid of it completely. But they were definitely on that side of the argument, and you had the union leaders saying this is all going to end terribly. And slowly Labour Party's adjusted its position, and they are now promising that things will be difficult after 2015. But again, they're not putting much in the way of numbers of billions of pounds on it. All they're saying is we're not going to borrow more to spend more. But that is pretty much taken for granted that they wouldn't be able to do that. The the question is whether they need to be honest about the billions of pounds that they would have to cut or the billions of pounds they would have to raise through further tax rises. So that's the politics of it. Chris, is there, from an economics point of view, an argument for tax cuts after the next election? Well, at the moment, there's no argument for tax cuts really at all because the deficit is still extremely large. It's expected to be in the order of £90 to £100 billion this financial year. And it's coming down, but it's coming down, as you said, slower than expected. So that is much worse than nearly every Eurozone country. We keep on talking in this country of France being a basket case economy because it's got a deficit of around 4% or so of national income. But ours is significantly higher than that. And we've got growth. And so this is the sort of time when you really need to be improving your public finances because We've got unemployment at 6%, so it can't go that much lower. It can certainly come down still. But there isn't that much scope for sort of just recovery to improve the public finances. There's a persistent or structural deficit that needs action. Now, you don't have to do it through spending cuts. You can do it through tax increases as well, not tax cuts, not like the Prime Minister was saying. Or you can do what Labour is suggesting. You can borrow a little bit more. You don't have to be quite as hair-shirty about all of this. But those are choices, and politicians aren't putting it very clearly what the choices they're making are for the next election. And they wanted to sort of say they're going to be tough and then promise good things, whether they're Labour or Tory at the moment. Jim, do you think that'll be a big battleground at the uh, election next year, the, the sort of choice between different economic manifestos? Yeah, I think it is. And to pick up on what Chris was saying, I think there is a, a certain clarity in terms of the Conservatives have made clear that they wouldn't have any tax rises at all and therefore cuts, whether it's to welfare or whether it's to departments or to anything else, that is going to take the brunt of any reductions in spending they're going to have to find. The Lib Dems have publicly said that they would favour some kind of ratio whereby there would be an element of tax rises. Labour, on the other hand, is keeping shtum about the whole thing. It has promised several tax rises, but these are fairly minimal. They're very much focused on the wealthy and the most affluent in society, and therefore whether Labour would come in and in a bid to avoid the worst of the public sector cuts would put up general taxation does appear to be reasonably likely but it's not something you're going to hear from them and FT today we had a front page story saying that only two out of five members of the public believe that there is a need for more austerity after 2015 that gives you some idea of how much pain there's going to be during the next parliament in terms of people waking up and realising that services they depend on are going to be cut once again. And I think if politicians seem fairly unpopular at the moment, that can only get worse. Now, Chris, talking about those cuts in the next parliament, you've done some analysis on this, haven't you? And I wonder what sort of findings you had about the nature of cuts that are likely in the next parliament compared to this parliament. Well, if you look at the departments that are likely to be in the line of fire, it's the same ones as this parliament. So it's local government, it's justice, it's home office, it's transport, and it's probably not health and maybe schools. Schools, we don't know about whether they're going to be protected yet, certainly not overseas aid, because all political parties have protected that budget. So we're looking at 
potentially some very, very large cuts of about a third. If you wanted to just do it from the non-protected departments, that means about a third off their day-to-day budgets. We're not talking about the capital budgets because, again, George Osborne has made it clear he doesn't want to cut that anymore. So that means all the action really happens in the non-protected departmental day-to-day spending unless you take a lot more out of welfare. Now, George Osborne has announced another freeze in benefits in the first two years of the next parliament. He would implement that, but that saved him only £3 billion. He said he wants to achieve £12 billion through further welfare cuts, which, you know, it's, it's of course possible. If you cut benefits, you'll cut spending. But even if you do that, the cuts are deeper in the next parliament to day-to-day budgets of the government departments than they were in this parliament. And Jim, do you think those welfare cuts, £12 billion, is that doable politically? Is the support for that? Well, there are two other policies which are, have been floated in the Tory ether, and one of those is restricting families who get child benefit to only the first two children or possibly three children. There's also the idea that young people could no longer get housing benefit because they'd be expected to live with their family. But these policies only save in the hundreds of millions of pounds. They don't get you anywhere near the £12 billion the Tories have talked about. Now, there are other things you can always do in terms of freezing thresholds. They could play around with tax credits even further because it's something that many of the public don't particularly understand and therefore, if you withdraw it slightly, the impact is not as obvious as if you do something very headline. But it's still a very big number. But the other question back on Labour is how are they going to achieve even their more modest deficit reduction programme without hitting welfare. And at the moment, the Labour front bench is in a bit of a dilemma because they have a situation where they've promised to reduce the deficit, but more slowly and slightly less than the Tories. But do they boast about that and therefore sort of play to their core who want to see fewer cuts? Or do the core actually want no cuts and therefore that doesn't work? Or do they kind of keep relatively quiet about that and just say that we are going to cut because they're worried about economic credibility? So they're between a bit of a rock and a hard place. And um, Ed Balls at a shadow cabinet meeting a couple of weeks ago said that you know they should anticipate departments and quangos waving their bleeding stumps. And uh, one member of the shadow cabinet said it's a sort of, we have to decide whether we're the party of bleeding hearts or the party of bleeding stumps. And what about the new party, UKIP, that's expected to make big gains at the election? Are they being any more honest about their economic policies than the major parties? Well, the fascinating thing about UKIP is that they don't play by the rules of the conventional parties and the public don't seem to expect them to play by those rules at the moment in that we don't have a manifesto from them. We don't have any clarity on in terms of most of their policies. We certainly don't have any clarity in terms of fiscal policy and what they do about the deficit. What we do have is a very, very clear message about Europe and a very clear message about immigration. And that is chiming very well with the electorate. And that kind of plays into the fact that the economy has come down the scale of things that people are interested in in terms of how they vote. If you go back to 2009, the economy was by far and away the biggest, most salient political issue in Britain. Since then, immigration has spiked. The NHS has more recently spiked to maybe a slightly lesser extent. And UKIP are taking votes from people who are particularly worried about these things. And I expect we'll see a UKIP manifesto before May. And I suspect it'll be less dodgy than the one in 2010, which had an annual £100 billion black hole. But that may not impact on their success.
So, Chris, if none of the main parties are really being very straight with us about what we can expect in the public finances after the next election, how big do you think the chances are that we'll actually see tax rises rather than tax cuts from 2015 onwards? Well, this is nothing new. So we tend to go into an election period with no one talking at all about tax increases. And then the first budget after the election, we get tax increases. We've had that in 2010, 25, 2001. The last three elections has been quite a pattern like that. So I think it's very likely it's more difficult if the Conservatives win because they can't come into government and open the books and say, oh, these are so much worse than we thought, even though they're not, because uh, we do know what the books look like. But I think we'll get the first three or four months of the next government will be a very difficult period where suddenly the economy will come centre stage because announcements on cuts or tax increases will have to come very quickly after the election. In fact, the deadline is November, end of November 2015, because that's when the new government will have to give local authorities their budget for April 2016. There is no leeway on that. You can't push it to one side. So the first thing whoever wins the election will have to do is try and come up with some real answers to these questions rather than electoral answers. So it sounds like either way, whichever party is elected, we're in for more pain, whether via spending cuts or tax rises or both. Chris Giles, economics editor, Jim Pickard, chief political correspondent, thank you very much. And we're asking our readers and listeners to put questions to Chris about the cuts and the state of Britain's finances. You can send those in to us online. And uh, Chris will be back next week in a special podcast to answer your questions about Britain and the cuts at the midway mark. Thank you very much. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.